In those days, a decree went out from Caesar, and so everyone went to their town to be registered. Joseph went up from Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem along with Mary. And when they were there, it came time for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloth, and laid him in a manger. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the field at night and keeping watch over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born. For you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Morning, everyone. How are you guys doing today? Hope you guys all had a great uh, Thanksgiving uh, holiday. Um, my name is Young, and I am our multi and next gen <clears throat> director here uh, at Riv. Great to, to join you guys here uh, at a real town venue. Um, for our time this morning, we're going to spend uh, it in the book of Matthew. And uh, as we continue on in week number two, I believe, of our And He Shall Be Called series, uh, as we lead into now the Christmas season, and depending on who you are, uh, at least for me, I'm uh, November 1 is the start of the Christmas season, and I start listening to, yes, thank you, right? And all God's people said amen to that. Yes, absolutely. Um, And as we kind of dive into the Christmas season, uh, we are going to be spending our time in the book of Matthew. Uh, this morning. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, uh, we are going to be in verses 1 through 17. And <clears throat> if you didn't know the genealogy of Jesus, you're going to know today because I'm going to read through all of the names of Jesus's uh, descendants um, his great, 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 great uh, grandfathers and a couple of grandmothers. So we're about to hear a bunch of, of Hebrew names this morning. That's how we're going to start off from the jump. Here we go. Matthew chapter 1. Please keep your ears open because we're going to move fast going through this genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we go. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Aram, and Aram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boab by Rahab, Boab fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, and Rehoboam fathered Abijah, and Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat. Father Joram, Joram father Uzziah, Uzziah father Jotham, and Jotham father Ahad. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, and Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, and Manasseh fathered Ammon, and Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile of, to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, and Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, and Abiud fathered Eliakim, and Eliakim fathered Azor, and Azor fathered Zadok, and Zadok fathered Akim, and Akim fathered Eliud. 
Eliud fathered Eliezer, and Eliezer fathered Nathan, and Nathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thank you. If you didn't know, my next rap album's coming out next year. So, <laughs> and verse 17, and so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, another 14 generations. Wow. Amen. Uh, Pray with me as we jump into the text this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this this morning as we can gather as a church family. Um, Lord, I pray that as as we dive into your word this morning, um, I pray, Father, that our minds would be sharp uh, to understand your word today. I pray, Father, that whatever burdens we may be bearing deep within our hearts this morning, um, for some, the holiday season, as we know, uh, is not a time of joy, but maybe this year it is a time of, of despair. Maybe it is a time of, of grieving and mourning. Um, whatever we are bearing in our hearts this morning, Lord, uh, I pray, Father, that your word uh, today, even a genealogy that seems so just unnecessary would speak deeply into our lives, Lord. I pray, Father, that our eyes would be opened through the power of your spirit, that your text would be illuminated to us today, that you would speak life into us, Lord. May Christ be exalted in our hearts and in our lives, in all that we do. We pray all this in his name, amen. So I have a question for you guys to start our time off. Uh, how good are you at keeping your promises? Some of us are pretty good. Some of us not. Some of we like to do the overpromise, underdeliver. You know, a little bit of bait and switch, right? A little juke. Uh, what does it mean? I hope you. If you, that's you, like you got to work on that. Okay, I'm just gonna be straight up with that. Uh, what does it mean to promise someone something? What does it mean to promise someone something? One psychology journal uh, notes that promises are voluntary commitments to perform a future action. They're voluntary commitments to perform a future action, whether that's for one person, a group of people, or even yourself. You make promises to yourself. Uh, I read through some psychological studies uh, in preparation for this message on on promise keeping, and the findings are actually very fascinating. Uh, One of the results from a study uh, showed that people actually kept and keep their promises more often than not. Okay, they actually follow through with their word more often than not. One study that that I saw showed that, and this is a bit of a range here, okay, 61 to 98% of the people in that study um, kept their words. So I know 61, you're like, okay, that's not that much, all right? But 98%, that's a lot, okay, right? So 61 to 98% of participants kept their word, and another group of participants, when asked to estimate promise keeping, to, to, they, they were asked, how do you think these group of people or this person will actually follow through with their promise They systematically underestimated the promise keeping by 20 to 40%. So they actually did not believe that other people would follow through with their promise. 
Promises are a powerful statement uh, to make when it comes to building relationships, right? I don't know about you, there have been people in my life that have followed through with promises, um, and then there are people in my life who have not. I've been a person who has made promises to people and I've followed through with them, and sometimes uh, I mess up and I don't follow through with them. uh, Promises, again, are powerful statements to make when it comes to building the relationships, to forge relationships in our lifetime. Several years ago, uh, one of my closest friends, and I can't necessarily go into super detail, uh, but some time ago, uh, one of my closest friends, she went to a a retreat, um, and she unfortunately came out of that retreat a year later uh, as an an unbelieving person in the Lord. Because at that retreat, the preacher had told her a promise from God for her life. And for about a whole year, she chased after that promise, thinking that if God would show that promise to her, it would validate certain parts of her life. And what ended up happening was, never happened. And so what happens then? What happens when people or someone in your life doesn't follow through the promise? They're viewed as a liar. And so before deconstruction right, of your faith, uh, you know, that, that became this hot buzzword in our current cultural moment, she was deconstructing before that even became a thing. And so what ended up happening was because she viewed God to be a liar after that situation, because he never followed through with this promise, she ends up not believing in God, walks away from the church. My friend, one of my closest friends to this day, who we did ministry with, now lives this life as an unbeliever. It's absolutely devastating. Promises are powerful. Promises are powerful. And Matthew here in the passage that we read sets out from the opening parts of his gospel uh, in a very interesting manner. It's to show his Jewish audience that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was in fact the promised Messiah, the promised Savior that the Jewish scriptures pointed to. But the way that Matthew does this is very uncanny. Not because genealogies were weird. I, I, I don't remember, I don't know about you, I don't remember for me the last time I ever read a genealogy. Like, uh, I, I never did the, what, what is it, 23andMe? I'd never done any of that. I'm kind of scared to do that, right? Because like, what if like, they just throw in some random stuff? I don't know, right? I don't know when the last time you read a genealogy was. But for the Jewish people, it would not be weird. The Jewish people, it actually was very common to understand where people came from, where the family, um, excuse me, who your family was. But there are some weird parts of this genealogy that we're going to touch because normally you would not add women, at least, in a genealogy, and yet Matthew does that. And so for the remainder of our time, I'm going to go through this genealogy, but just touch on five different names that lead to the birth of Jesus to show that God would promise or fulfill his promise to the Jewish people and to the rest of the world. So if you have your Bibles again, please look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. We have the first name of the first woman in this genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, Judah, 
fathered Perez and Zerah by a woman named Tamar. Who is Tamar? There are three women named Tamar who show up in the scriptures, and we can identify which Tamar this is, again, by looking at the genealogy and seeing who came before her and who she gave birth to. And the backstory of this Tamar goes like this. We're going all the way. When I say we're going all the way back, we're going like Genesis, okay? Genesis chapter 38. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to give just quick, little, brief, little biopics of these people here, Okay. So if you go back to Genesis 38, a guy named Jacob mentioned here in the genealogy, his son Judah had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah, right? Tamar married Er, but Er ended up dying. So then she was given, as the Jewish custom would do, she was given Obed, oh, I'm sorry, Onan, to marry Tamar. That was, he was the next brother. And then my guy, Onan, ended up dying. Very unfortunate, Yes. And then Sheila, or Sheila, was too young to marry Tamar. And so Judah makes this promise to Tamar and says, well, just wait until you stay in my household, wait until he's old enough to marry, and then you can marry him back into her family. But then when he did get old enough to marry Tamar, Judah actually, my guy Judah, overpromised, underdelivered. He actually said, no, you can't marry Tamar. You can't marry Sheila. And so with a heart of revenge, she disguises herself as a prostitute. This is wild. She disguises herself as a prostitute and tricks her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. And then she gets pregnant and gives birth to two twins mentioned here, Perez and Zerah. I know. It's like a telenovela or a K-drama, whatever. It's crazy, right? (laughs) Second person. The next two, I'm sorry, second and third women mentioned. Matthew 1.5, moving along. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, uh, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Now we fast forward from Genesis to the book of Joshua. And as the Israelites were making their way into the promised land, if you did not know the story of Rahab here, um, they were trying to make their way into the promised land. And one of the strongholds of the promised land was a city called Jericho, Right? And as a result, Joshua sends in two spies into the land and to receive intel, right? And the king of Jericho at the time, he gets wind, okay, that there are spies in our city. We need to kind of oust them, right? We need to find out who they are. And Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, she hides the two spies and protects them because as she says in the book of Joshua, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth above. Below The reason why she says that, she and the other Canaanite people, they heard the story of, of Israel's exodus from Egypt, the miracle of the Red Sea, and they were afraid. But Rahab, she wasn't just afraid, but she knew, oh, the God that the Israelites believe in is the one true God. This pagan nation of Canaan, has this one Canaanite prostitute who believes in the God of Israel. And so she hides the two Israelite spies, and in the end, the Israelites enter the city, destroy the city, but leave Rahab and her entire family intact because of her faithfulness to the Israelites. I'm sorry, to the God of the Israelites. Later, she marries uh, an Israelite named Salmon and from the tribe of Judah and gives birth to a son named Boaz, which is leads us next up to the woman named Ruth, a woman from the land of Moab, again, not an Israelite, 
a woman from the land of Moab who married an Israelite, but later her husband, her father-in-law, and her brother-in-law all die. Again, telenovela. It's crazy, right? Which left her with just her mother-in-law, Naomi. Seeing the loss that Naomi had to bear, she lost her husband and her two sons. They leave Moab together and make the journey to Judah, to the city of Bethlehem, and Ruth and Naomi settle there. And in short, a man named Boaz, a close relative to Naomi, became what is known as a kinsman redeemer, which is essentially is a fancy way in their time to say uh, is a title to continue the family name within Israel because that was important in their custom. Which meant that after marrying Ruth, she was brought, I'm sorry, for Boaz, after marrying Ruth, she was brought into his lineage and as Matthew writes, gives birth to Obed. And Obed, if you know your Jewish history, I'm assuming that you guys do. <laughs> Excuse me. And Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered none other than King David. Which leads us to who, the next person who Matthew writes, Uriah's wife. Her name is Bathsheba, but Matthew writes Uriah's wife, and that's important. Matthew 1.6, David fathered Solomon, Solomon by Uriah's wife. Again, if you know your Old Testament Bible, you know that King David was a man after God's own heart. And that wasn't just like a title that he gave himself. It wasn't like, a, man, I'm a man after God's own heart, right? It was God who actually said, this is a man who's after my own heart. And so you have King David, and you cannot talk about King David's life without mentioning this woman that Matthew writes as Uriah's wife. Her name is Bathsheba. Because Bathsheba was the wife of a man named Uriah, and Uriah was the husband of, a, of the woman named Bathsheba, and Uriah was not an Israelite. He was a Hittite, which scholars presume that made also Bathsheba a Hittite as well. And King David, if you don't know the story, he one day sees her taking a bath outside, totally normal. He was kind of being the weirdo, right? And summons her to his palace, and he sleeps with her. And while her husband, get this, if you don't know, let me put you onto the story, it's kind of wild. While her husband Uriah was fighting for him in battle for King David, right? And so what ends up happening is that King David sleeps with Bathsheba. They get pregnant. She says, I'm pregnant with your baby. And so King David, he tries to cover this up. And what does he do? He says, Yo, I'm going to call back Uriah from battle so he can sleep with his wife. And this will all be taken care of. But what does Uriah do? My guy is loyal. He's loyal to his soldiers. And he says, how can I, how can I leave my soldiers? How can I leave my fellow soldier who's fighting? And he actually chooses not to go home to his wife. And as a result, King David, again, fast forwarding, orders him to go to the front line. And that was a guarantee that he would end up dying in combat, which he does. And so now as King David's wife, Bathsheba, gives birth to the son who unfortunately dies just seven days after birth. And then they give birth to another son, second son named Solomon, who later takes the throne as the king of Israel. And as you read the genealogy, you move on and on and on, and you come to verse 16, and we come to the next and final woman mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. And Jacob, father Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. 
Lastly, we come to Mary, the young teenage girl who gives birth to Jesus Christ in a lowly manger, a young teenage girl where in their times and customs would be ostracized from society for being pregnant, especially though not married, being married to Joseph. Let's take a quick breath, okay? Because that was a lot, right? A lot of backstory, a lot of, of just history. A lot was just said about these five women and some of the men involved in their stories. Again, we have Tamar who tricked her father-in-law to sleep with her after he had taken back his word on marrying his youngest son. When he was older, we have Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. God uses to give insight and encouragement to the Israelites who remain faithful to the God of Israel. We have Ruth, who remains faithful to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and marries into the lineage of Judah. We have Bathsheba, who gets coerced into having sex with a man who God called to be a man after his own heart, wild. And we have Mary, a young teenage girl, who through a miracle by the Holy Spirit gives birth to Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Talk about a family line. <laughs> like, that is Jesus's family history. Like, you guys got family secrets? I got some family secrets I'm not allowed to share, but Jesus got family secrets right here, right? Talk about a family line. Now, if I were Matthew, honestly, if I were Matthew writing this, and I'm trying to prove to people that, yo, Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, is the savior of the world, I don't know if I would start like this. You see what I'm saying? I don't know if I would ultimately start like this, to show that this is the line that the savior of the world, that the one who would reconcile the world to God and bring the heavens and the earth back into harmony. I don't know if I would start like this. Because if you didn't know, again, one of the main motifs of the book of Matthew, you know, each, each book of the Bible has their own theme. One of the themes, one of the main goals of the book of Matthew is, again, to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. And now, there are some pretty compelling arguments, though, in this genealogy. He comes from the Abrahamic line. He comes from the Davidic line. Very powerful and compelling arguments that as a Jewish person reading this, I'd be like, okay. But then you start picking up all these different stories of the people in between, and you're like, this doesn't make sense. How could the Savior of the world come through this genealogy. We see that this family line is far from perfect. Perfect. There are faithful people in this lineage of Jesus, and there are also people who may struggle to even reconcile as worth following, i.e. King David. Quite honestly, I struggle to read sometimes the words of King David. I'm like, man, this guy, he kind of he messed up a lot. And yet Jesus is portrayed as the climax of this bloodline. He is perfection. God made into man, stepped into his own creation, coming through a family tree that is marred by sin and shame. Through this imperfect family tree, we see that God is indeed good on making do his promise. We say that with promises, you either make the promise and you fulfill them, or they remain unfulfilled. And you see that the faithfulness of God leads him to actually fulfill the promises that he would make, that he made in the Old Testament. 
through this imperfect family tree, God shows that no amount of sin could thwart the birth of Jesus Christ, who would ultimately live the perfect life that we could not live, die the death that only he could die, and resurrect from the grave the only act that he could do. We, sh- we see that sin truly did not have any ability to stop God's plan of redemption for the world. Not through the family lineage, nor could sin keep Jesus in that grave. Because as we know, Jesus resurrects from the grave three days later, conquering sin, Satan, and death. The promise of God stands firm in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But this promise is not just an ethereal promise, okay? This promise is not just some ethereal promise that we're like, oh, that sounds great. Let's move on with our lives. It is a promise that we can have hope and a promise that we can find assurance in. I, I probably read this quote to you guys multiple times. I'm sorry if it's getting, if it's getting old. Um, I love this quote. It's from Dr. Tim Keller. Rest in peace. This is what he says. He says, Aristotle thought it was impossible that humans could be friend with a God because friends have things in common and can say, oh, you too? But in becoming human, God's first great act of friendship, he became like us, drawing near to us so we could draw near to him. Let me read that line. He became like us, drawing near to us so that we could draw near to him since he humbled himself to get near us. Only the humble, not the haughty, can be his friends. In his second great act of friendship, he gave his life for us. In our suffering then, we can look at Jesus and say, you too. Dr. Tim Keller, he, he says this quote in the context of, of what is needed in building a relationship with someone. It is that moment that when you find someone in your life and you say, oh, you too? Oh, you like anime too? Oh, me too. Oh, your family is also messed up? Mine too. (laughs) It's in this context of, oh, you too? You as well? Oh, your family history, Jesus, is not perfect? Oh, you come from a broken family with messed up people? Oh, you, you, Jesus, also suffered while living on this earth? Oh, you too? God became like us. He came in ultimate humility, born in a manger, born to an embarrassing family situation, born from a lineage of people who are faulty and sin-ridden members of God's chosen people. And in this case, we can relate to Jesus and he can relate to us. Jesus was, in fact, the son of God, full in his deity, but he was also known as the son of man full in his humanity. Though he is very much 100% God, he too is 100% man. And Jesus' life shows that he can, in fact, relate with us. Though Jesus was and is perfect, he is without sin, he invites us into his messy family. We'll close with a passage from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes this. Excuse me. 
for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, because if we indeed suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We have received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God's promise to us is not about, and please hear this, his promise to us, if you read throughout the scripture, is not about a wealthier life. God's promise to us is not about a healthier life. God's promise to us is not about a more relaxed life. God's promise to us is not even about a life without suffering. God's promise to us today, his commitment to us is that if you accept Jesus' invitation to a life with him, there is a seat at the table for you. There is room for us in God's kingdom. There is a relationship forged between us and God, and we get to call him Father, and he calls us his children. God's promise to us is that we get to be heirs of God and co-heirs with our big brother Jesus, and the inheritance is not a better life. It's not a life without suffering. It's not a wealthier life or whatever, but it is eternal life. Eternal life that is promised in the here and now and after we die. God's promise to us is given through an invitation to enter into a redeemed family. It's crazy because I don't, I don't know what your life looks like right now. I don't know whether or not you have accepted this invitation by God, but if you have not Consider it today. Consider being invited into this redeemed family. I don't know if you've ever been invited to your friend's, your friend's family's Thanksgiving dinner, right? It's kind of like that, but better, all right? The invitation of God, the promise of God is an invitation to join this redeemed family called the church or the body of Christ, which admittedly may be messy at times and, again, probably doesn't have the best street cred right now in our cultural moment. But Jesus' invitation to us is to join this redeemed family. But as we saw in Jesus' own family tree, he doesn't necessarily come from the best line of people. In a sense, he's kind of sandwiched between really like messy people, and then you have Jesus, and then everyone else after that, meaning us, It's not really like, it's not the best, right? He's sandwiched in between very imperfect sections of a family that tries to understand what it means to be God's people. One family tree that pointed to his arrival and one part of the family tree that points back to the person that we're trying to become. Our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, our big brother, our friend, our King, Jesus Christ. Jesus' invitation is to join this redeemed family that is trying to become more and more like him. Through his messy lineage, Jesus arrives on the scene and proves God's faithfulness to the world. That no amount of sinful people, 
could thwart his arrival on earth, that no amount of sin could thwart his promise to rescue the world from sin, and that promise is extended to us today. And we have the entirety of the scriptures that God, he is faithful to follow through and to fulfill his promises. And the invitation for us is to come and believe, to know that Jesus Christ is the perfect one, the Son of God, the Son of Man who lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, the very sin that tried to thwart his arrival here on earth was buried in the grave and three days later resurrected from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And if you accept and believe that, it's not just this golden ticket that you get to heaven. It's far more beautiful than that, but it's an invitation to a redeemed family. And so if that's you today, where you come from a broken family, a broken place, where your family is messy, and you're like, man, I need other people in my life, consider this invitation for you. Let me pray for us as we reflect on God's word, on the beauty of a genealogy that points and validates Jesus' life that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Let me pray that for us, and we'll sing a, a, one more song as we close out. Lord, the gospel truly is much more than a golden ticket to heaven. I pray, I, I actually pray, Lord, that, that we would not render it down to something as, as simple as that. But Lord, the gospel is something that we can live out and experience in the here and now through a redeemed family, redeemed people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that for our church family, that Riverview would be a family of messy and broken people that are just trying to figure it out to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be a family that is willing to bear one another's burdens, bear one another's mess, and that we would together come bring it to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, Lord, help us in our need. I pray that for our church, Lord. I pray that we would be known in the Lansing area, not as a church of just these people who, who know their theology or, or love the Bible or whatever. I pray that our church would be known to be a redeemed family that invites the broken, that invites the messy and says that you too, you're broken too, me too. But here is the one who saved me, who made me whole. I pray that that would be the mark of our family. Thank you for adding us to your genealogy, to your lineage, Lord, to be part of this family, Lord. It's truly a joy and a blessing. May we become more like Christ in all that we do, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.